Ag State of Mind, Episode 6. Welcome to Ag State of Mind, a podcast that examines the stresses affecting producers of agriculture and how to alleviate these stresses and improve farmers' lives. In this podcast, we discuss openly the mental health crisis that is occurring in the agricultural community and what we can do to help turn it around. Now here's your host, Jason Meadows. Welcome to this episode of Ag State of Mind. This is your host, Jason Meadows. Today on the show, we are talking to Michelle Payne. Michelle Payne is an author, speaker, and advocate for our food system. Michelle's newest book, Food Bullying, is set to ship out November 5th. So as of this being released, it's uh, shipping out tomorrow. I actually had the chance to read this as a Kindle edition over the last month or so. Um, has some really, really great common sense solutions to help consumers with the choices at the grocery store and other places where we get our food. So please go check that out. And um, we talked to Michelle today about how consumers' food choices are affecting farmers and ranchers at the beginning of the supply chain, where there's a lot of increased demand for certain things coming from the consumers. And we talk about how that's affecting the well-being of those at the beginning who are actually growing the food we consume. And we also talked to her about her work in mental health and the Facebook Live she hosts at the beginning of every month. She is a great advocate for mental health in agriculture and making sure that our nation's food producers are at their best. So I really enjoyed this conversation with Michelle. I look up to her and she is a great advocate and great asset to our industry. So also please go and subscribe. There is actually a new show link in iTunes. We had just a little bit of a problem when we transitioned over to the Global Ag Network. Nothing that is major, but our site, our show link has changed over on iTunes. So go subscribe again to the new show. It's called Ag State of Mind with Jason Meadows. Um, we'll be over there on mostly on iTunes. Everything else should have stayed the same, but there was just a little bit of problem with the transition on iTunes. And if you aren't subscribed on a podcast medium like Stitcher, iTunes, or Spotify, go check us out at the Global Ag Network. So with no further ado, here is my conversation with Michelle Payne. Hi, Michelle. Welcome to the show today. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for having me. How are things in Indiana? Uh, well, they're a little cloudy uh, and they're about to get really wet. We're very excited that tomorrow we have a huge cross-country meet and 100% chance of rain. So harvest is not something you want to talk about in Indiana this year. No, I know. And, you know, I'm seeing that not so much from where we're at, because like I've said, we're not a whole lot of row cropping going on where I'm at. But, uh, you know, from what I'm gathering on for the the Northern Plains and folks in, in the prairies in Canada, harvest is kind of rough for them this year. So, yeah, uh, and I know they have it a lot worse up north. So prayers to everyone for sure. It's a tough year. I think we are all ready for 2020. Yep, I agree. Yep, I I agree. And I was talking with a good friend of mine, Clay Connery, 
And uh, it's it's very rare we find every sector of the ag industry kind of down in the dumps. Usually somebody's having a good year, but it seems like there's no one having a good year. You know, wheat prices are down, beans and corn, dairy, cattle, hogs, everyone is just kind of down in the gutter. <laughs> yeah, we sound a little depressing, but when you throw trade and weather on top of that, I mean, it creates some real challenges for people. And yeah. I, I know from working with folks across the states and Canada who farm, it, it's just been a tough year for everybody. Um, and I think there's probably a lot of people that are really struggling with mental health out there. So glad to chat with you about it today. Yeah, absolutely. So um, if you don't mind, can you tell me a little bit about yourself um, about your background, your family, and what you do? Sure. Well, I am a dairy farm girl from Michigan. I bleed green for the Michigan State Spartans, for anyone who's not aware. <laughs> <laughs> I am a mom of a teenage girl, which is a measure of resiliency in itself, though I love her dearly, and a stepmom too, which is a whole nother measure of resiliency. Um, but we reside in Indiana, and I have been a registered Holstein breeder since I was nine years old. Still have those beautiful ladies grazing my front yard today. And uh, work as a professional speaker and author and podcaster now, like you, um, at my company Cause Matters, which has been around for 18 years. So happy to uh, always connect with new folks around the food plate and particularly on the farm side, of course. So do you guys operate a dairy where you're at? We actually just have heifers here and our neighbors milk them for us. So uh, while I do live on a small farm, out of respect for the people who farm full time, I don't usually attach farmer as my title, um, just out of respect for the people who make a living at it and are there 24-7. Sure. Well, the dairy industry is, um, it's one that's it's hard to keep up with and to, to, cause it's just really something you have to be married to. Uh, we never did any of that at my place, but we had one down the road from us that was, uh, I think he had a 70 cow dairy. And I mean, it was a 24 seven job, like you say, and yep. those cows need milked regardless of the weather or the holiday it is. It's a 24, 365 job. It is. And it's a, a love that you have to have in your heart that, uh, or you don't do it. That's for sure. That's why some of these, claims out there about the way we care for our animals and specifically dairy cattle just make me kind of have a large question mark, shall we say, because you can't spend 24-7, 365 days um, milking cows without loving them. And that's just the reality. Of yeah. It. So I don't understand that either. And, you know, I... I think that it speaks a lot to how far removed so many people are from their food and from, you know, from the industry that, you know, they would even question the love that a, a farmer or a rancher would have for their animals. It just uh, is kind of mind blowing to me. But like you said, I am well connected to livestock as you are. And so we kind of understand it. And people who are removed and live in a suburban or urban area just don't have that exposure. And so I maybe I just don't understand. So that's why I found your book, your new book and your new podcast particularly interesting because I feel like it kind of does its service to bridge the gaps. So talk to me a little bit about your book and your podcast. Sure. Well, November 5th, uh, Food Bullying is coming out and basically uh, addresses how choice is being removed from the farm and, and food. 
And the premise in which I wrote Food Bullying, which is my third book, was after I wrote my second one, you know, I realized I couldn't cover every issue in the grocery store. And there's 40,000 products, believe it or not, in the average grocery store. And by my estimate, if you put five claims on every one of those products, that's 200,000 plus claims that we have to sort through, which is just crazy. So food bullying really tries to help people understand how their brains are being manipulated about eating and in turn, their perceptions of farming. Um, and the, the book subtitle alludes to um, how to avoid buying BS, and the BS is bull speak, to be clear, um, <laughs> and helping people understand that they really have been buying a lot of bull speak when it comes to their eating choices and that food at the end of the day should be about safe nourishment for our families, not about guilt, not about shame, certainly not about groupthink. And we've been seeing way too much of that. I agree. And it's hard to, it's hard as a consumer to sift through so many of these mislabel, mis, uh, I shouldn't say mislabel because some of them are true to an extent, but um, misleading labels, I think I should say. Um, I'm thankful that I do not do the grocery shopping in our house. My wife takes care of that. Um, she's so good at you know, she's been so good at researching everything and and finding more and more out. She's a kind of a health and wellness coach. She's a fitness guru. And so she takes a lot of pride and a lot of responsibility to keep our our family healthy. And, you know, part of that goes into going to the grocery store and finding non-perishables that fit our family and fit our needs. And you know, it's it's incredibly difficult for her to sift through all of that, like you say, that BS, because there's so much of it out there. And uh, there's so much, um, and I don't want to speak to any one in particular, because, you know, there's so many, but there's so much information to sift through. And I kind of think your book and you, what you're trying to do maybe simplifies that a little bit. Well, it's really the goal. It was not an easy book to write because clearly I'm not a neuroscientist and I am not a psychologist. And the book required a lot of both of those. But before people glaze over, I think what's fascinating, when you look at the brain, it, it's not any different than what we do with animals. We know when they're happy. We know when they're unhappy. We know when they need to be fed. We, we can read our animals. And sometimes I think we miss that opportunity with our own brain. Uh, we all know that information overload is a real thing. One of the techniques that I talk about in the book is called information literacy. And that's really understanding where you're getting your information, what you need at hand, the sources in which you're getting it from, and then how to best employ it. That's a real challenge for a lot of people and particularly when it comes to food. And then obviously, the next aspect of that is the critical thinking, which we all like to make jokes that we're lacking critical thinking skills. But the reality is that neuroscience actually shows that our brains are being manipulated, uh, mm -hmm. again, about food. And it was fascinating to me because one of the studies that I uh, learned about, Jason, was a neuroscience study done down at Texas Tech. Uh, by Tyler Davis, fascinating look at technology and food production and how our brains accept that information. 
And what that study showed, and by the way, I uh, verified it with others that it was right on par with the way the brain processes information, is that when your brain feels comfortable with something, so in this particular case, some of the technologies they explored were animal welfare, sustainability, hormones, antibiotics, GMOs, and the like, and basically uh, used fMRI to measure how the brain responded. And what it clearly showed is that when the brain is comfortable with the topic, so in this particular case, sustainability and animal welfare, uh, the brain processes it in a different region and moves on. But when the brain is not comfortable, for example, hormones, GMOs, antibiotics, it actually holds on to the information and sits there and basically shows that it's fearful and it, it processes it in, in a different part of the brain. So. The short way of looking at all of that is that neuromarketing, the marketing using neuroscience is a real thing. It's been being done for quite some time. And unfortunately, the food bullies all know how to use our highly emotional brain against us. Yeah, you speak about in the book, um, the is it the rational writer and the emotional elephant? Is that how you... Is that oh, how you... you are good. You have read the book. I'm impressed. <laughs> <laughs> I have read the book. I, I I have been trying to in the very little bit of downtime I have. I that's been the book I've been of of choice I've been reading over the last month or so. I have it on a on my Kindle app on my phone. So yes, I have been I have I, I've done my homework for this podcast, Michelle. Well, thank you. I'm honored <laughs> that you're using your time. And and yes, and for all the men out there that are listening, um, yes, I know you're rolling your eyes about the emotional brain. However, <laughs> <laughs> it's it's pretty clear when you look at the data and the science that our brain can be likened uh, to an emotional elephant. And if you've ever dealt with cattle like I have, you know, whether it's an, an elephant that weighs 5,000 pounds um, compared to a 200 pound rider, or in my case, it's, I'm not going to state my weight, but let's just say <laughs> the cattle weigh a ton. I know I'm never going to be able to control them. I'm the rational rider of the brain. The emotional elephant are the cattle. So in other words, can we ever really control the beast that's so much larger than us? The emotions. And we all know that emotions have a tendency to get away from us, from disinformation to misinformation to sensationalism to the celebrity marketing and so forth. And, and that's the point we've gotten about food is there's, there's elephants running amok in the grocery store and restaurants, even on farms where people are getting way too emotional about something that's a, a basic necessity. So if you are, are like me and Jason, I know you work cattle too. I mean, can, do you know how to control an animal when you need to? Yeah, of course. Right. I mean, it's, I mean wow. it's leveraging, right? Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. So the, the same concept is true with the brain because clearly the human writer, the human rational writer is the more evolved being. Mm -hmm. We should be able to leverage our strength, our intellect, and our ability to work with the emotional elephant. The same is true in our brain. We're just not used to doing it. I, I'm more, I will openly admit, I am more equipped and more comfortable with walking in the barn and dealing with a 2,000 pound animal than I am in trying to get my emotions under control when I don't really feel like it. <laughs> I, 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 well, I, we, we talked before we started recording about my, um, my nine year old son and he, how he has sometimes he's his father's child. He has a hard time, you know, keeping his temper at bay. He has, you know, he, he's a very emotional, big, 
personality. You know, so yes, he has a hard time. But this summer, he took a 1,000-pound heifer, and he maybe weighs 70 pounds himself, and he led her around the show lane like she was a chihuahua. You know, <laughs> so if, you know, why, you know, it's the same concept, you know, we have this big, huge emotion, emotional brain that, you know, can pull us in any which direction we we allow it to. But if we put a harness on it and um, put it in a more, like you say, rational, evolved direction, then then we can take it, it, it it's, then it'll take, we can take it wherever we want to. It's fascinating that more people don't realize that in, in, you know, like you, my daughter, um, shows cattle, dairy cattle, I might add. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it, it amazes me, even though I've grown up showing cattle and working cattle and I taught her, I hope most of what she knows, it amazes me to watch her because she goes in that pasture and she is the Pied Piper and all of those animals will absolutely follow her to the end of the earth. And I, I wish that people who didn't work with animals could see that trust it, because it's not the same as the trust that you build in a dog who blindly follows you. I mean, farm animals, building trust in them is huge. But as you said, it's the same concept in dealing with our brain is number one, you have to realize that it has to be trained and to put the halter on it, to put the harness on it, and to really try to know where your own boundaries or standards are. Yeah, it's uh it's a it's an interesting concept too. And um I'm I'm glad that you have been able to apply that to 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 our food and to selections we make in the grocery store. Um so what I we this is obviously a mental health podcast. So I I want to ask you how are how is the food bullying as as we've come to call it how is that affecting producers at the farm and at the ranch level? How are people um, people making these decisions as consumers? How is that affecting the producers? Well, clearly consumers are driving choices that are being made in restaurants and retailers and on the farm. Um, Before we go down that path, I I do want to make sure that I give a nod that there are clearly far greater pressures that are impacting you as a farmer. I understand prices are in the toilet, weather stinks, trade is awful. It's been a tough year like we talked about. However, I do also firmly believe that consumers' acceptance of modern farming practices are contributing to some of the mental health issues that we're seeing. Um, We all know that regulations and overproduction, if you'd like to call it that, has pushed some products out of our use. You know, for example, when I am out on the West Coast or in Michigan working with some of the different fruit and vegetable growers, I know they can no longer use products, even though they're scientifically proven, because of the fact that they don't pass consumer muster, if you will. Um, Likewise, clearly the egg housing uh, laws that have been passed and the legislation that's been passed um, have driven egg prices up. And that's one of the things that I talked about as a case study of food bullying um, was a Cornell study that showed that egg prices have been driven up because of the requirements um, around larger laying hen pens and enriched colonies and so forth and so on. So wherever you fall on that spectrum and so, and how you buy your eggs is fine. But I guess the point here is, is that 
uh, prices have been being driven up. We all know at the farm level that farmers often end up paying for those prices and yeah. perhaps receive a lower um, receipt at the end. And, and I think that's one of the real challenges that we have. And, and so I just want to encourage people that whether it's bullying that's happening around regulations or another farmer bullying you. I mean, I think sadly, if we were honest about our business of agriculture filled with wonderful people, very opinionated people who sometimes bully each other. Uh, one of the examples that I shared was from a friend who farms several thousand acres up in Nebraska, has transitioned half of his acreage to organics and consequently has been bullied by his neighbors. That to me is a really sad statement. And I guess I would just ask everyone listening, can't we do better? Yeah, I I, I remember your, um, I've seen you speak about that and it, it always... It always makes me wonder why. Why do? Why does anyone else care what someone else does with their own operation? Um, I, you know, um, if he wants to, you know, I, I'm going to try and um, make a parallel to my own life and to my own um, in the ag business. I like corn-fed beef. I just do. I like the way it tastes better. Um, and for a long time, I I felt like I needed to push that on to other people and, you know, telling them that grain finished beef is better than grass finished beef. Um, that just because that was my experience, but in real, all reality, we're all on the same side here. We're all wanting people to eat beef. You know, why it, the, the fact that it's either grass or grain fed, it really should be negligible because it's all beef in the end. And I, I feel the same way with um, organic crops versus non-organic crops. You know, um, that's that's not a fight for us to fight amongst ourselves. And if we're fighting amongst ourselves and bickering amongst ourselves, then, you know, the other side I feel is one. I would absolutely agree. And I would point out too, you know, I've been looking at this for 18 years as far as advocacy and the opportunity to tell a better agriculture story. And once upon a time, I would say, yes, that the activists were certainly positioning us against each other. I still think that's probably true. Um, they know where agriculture's greatest weaknesses are, which are also our greatest strength, and that's our independence. Mm -hmm. But the challenge is, is that that it's not just about outside parties pushing us against each other. And I, I think it speaks to some of the mental health crisis, which I'm sure people are sick of hearing about. But I, I, I've seen a shift in agriculture. I've seen a shift. And I, I think some of it is because of the consumer backlash that that people, and I would say it's both men and women, think it has to be their way or the highway. Mm -hmm. And one of the standards that I, I wrote about in the book, because I, I suggest everybody comes up with their own health, ethical, environmental, and social standards. And one of the things I did was try to write my own standards, just as an example. And that's when I realized that one of my very basic principles that I operate on through all things is choice. I adamantly believe in choice on the food plate. I believe that people have the right, if they want to buy grass-fed beef, more power to them. I think it's gross. Mm -hmm. But you know what? More power to them. And likewise, if someone wants to drink almond juice, that's fine. But it's not my choice. But I don't feel the need to insult almond farmers, even if I don't particularly like that product. I mean, I will eat almonds all day long. But the challenge that we've come into 
And I, I think part of it's our independence, some of it's our stubbornness, some of it's our modesty, and some of it's just the fact that maybe we've lost sight on what really matters. Um, because I think, again, all the pressures that people are under on the farm, that civility and respect are sometimes lost. And unfortunately, it's undermining the credibility of agriculture at some level. So when do you think that this shift started? At, you know, what was the, you know, the like day zero of this? Because um, I feel like for a long time, or this is this is my perception, maybe I'm wrong, that it was more a producer-driven industry and we produce what we produce and people will eat it regardless. You know, obviously we've always had regulations or we've had regulations for a long time, but now it's shifted to where it's more consumer-driven um, to where people, people will say, I want, I want grass-fed beef, I want non-GMO crops, um, that sort of thing. I can't put my finger on specifically when it shifted, but I do think that it's interesting to consider the fact that it's not only that people who are buying our product are dictating what they will eat, but also how it has to be produced. Mm -hmm. And, And I always challenge folks on the farm side of the plate to think about what that means. Because for example, I was just uh, sitting with a local reporter today doing an interview and she shared how she made some of her food selections. And I, I told her point blank, I don't agree, but no judgment mm-hmm. because that's her choice. And I think that's one of the things that we have to respect because at the end of the day, people, particularly moms, I would say, but people are worried about making the right choice for feeding their family. They're worried about um, doing the, quote, right thing. And that's really challenging because, as you shared, when your wife goes to the grocery store, it's completely overwhelming. And so we have to respect that when someone asks a question, that they're just asking a question. They're not attacking our way of life. So, you know, Jason, for example, if I walked up to you and said, well, why are all beef pumped full of hormones? You probably would get a little defensive. Yeah, because most of the time, in my experience, people have asked that question already have an agenda. Sure. Do they have an agenda or are they just asking? Right. And that, no, you're, you're, I totally agree with you. Um, that, you know, maybe they're, ju- I mean, maybe they're just genuinely curious. And I think that is a big key in how we are addressing people is we do automatically assume that folks have an agenda and we go on the defensive. Yeah. And we all do it. I do it too, to be clear. Mm-hmm. And it's really, really hard to step back. But in my first book, um, as far as answering your question about when this all tipped, I released No More Food Fights in 2013. Mm-hmm. I thought things were pretty bad then, mm-hmm. but I had no idea because clearly that was before the social media craze and the keyboard cowards and, and so forth. But I, I do think it's important to step back and take a look at where people are getting their information. And, and one of the things that I wrote about in Food Bowling is the implied power of position, platform, and product. And when you think about it, everywhere where consumers are turning, they're getting information pushed at them about food. Disinformation, misinformation, 
sensationalized information and hopefully maybe some factual information, whether it would be the doctor who's never had a nutrition class, Mm -hmm. uh, whether it would be a farmer who is trying to position their product as more superior than the other, Mm -hmm. whether it would be a, a journalist who has no nutrition background or whether it would be going to a restaurant and seeing that it's a, quote, clean, unquote, food on the menu. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one of the challenges is there's this implied power. And it, I know from personal experience how incredibly difficult it can be because um, without getting into the details, when I wrote my last book, Food Truths from Farm to Table, I was caretaking a loved one with cancer. Mm-hmm. And it was lymphoma. And it was excruciatingly emotional, clearly. And it really opened my eyes up to how susceptible we are to information that we desperately want to believe during life changes, during illnesses, um, whether it would be taking care of a loved one with cancer, whether it would be moving away to college, whether it would be putting your mom um, in a retirement home, whatever it may be. The point here is, is that it it's really challenging for people to think they're doing the right thing with food. And I happen to believe that agriculture has a responsibility, um, not just we should, but we have a responsibility to help people understand the truth and how their food is raised. And I have no problem being radically transparent to show people how food is raised because they don't have the context as to why we do what we do. And we have to provide that context in kindness, not defensiveness. Yeah, no, I I agree 100%. And um, I think some people are starting to take the cues. Um, I saw something today before I got on, on this call with you where um, the, in, I think it was Georgia where they were opening up a chicken house, opening a viewing tape, uh, like a, um, like a viewing window inside a chicken house. And, you know, they weren't, they weren't, there weren't any biosecurity issues. There was a glass in front of them, but, um, they were showing what happens in a poultry house. And, you know, I think that's, that's kind of what's going to have to happen a little bit is we're going to have to become as transparent as as possible without, and this is a big key here, without affecting the biosecurity of our food. Absolutely. And I think that transparency can be through the way that we talk about it. Um, so as an example, when I've been on podcasts out on the West Coast, um, I make a point of talking about what animals do to each other. And I might add from a mental health standpoint, it can be really therapeutic. <laughs> mm-hmm. because. Of course, with respect to the animals, but animals can be really hysterical creatures that 98.5% of the world never get to see. So Mm -hmm. one of the things that that I um, did on this podcast is we were talking about what animal welfare looks like. And I very casually and not intentionally, but I asked the host, well, have you ever been bit in the butt when you walk down the street? (laughs) And they started laughing because they had no idea where I was going. And and what I did was I used it as an opportunity to talk about why we dock tails and hogs and wild mm-hmm. um, chickens' beaks and dehorned cattle. Mm-hmm. Is animals are cruel. They do horrible things to each other. But if we're not 
openly sharing stories about that. You know, for example, dehorning. Do I post pictures of our animals being dehorned? No, I don't. It's even to me. However, I talk about it every time that my daughter, who is still trying to figure out how to dehorn, (laughs) but every time we dehorn, I talk about why we do it. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's disgusting. Yes, the animal rights activists are out there trying to make us look like we're horrible people for burning bones out of animal skulls. I know that's one of their favorite claims. But what I do is I talk about the protection that that offers. Number one, as a mom, I don't want my daughter um, having another cracked rib from a horn. Number two, I don't need to have bruises all over my body, which I've had from horns. And thirdly, animals are mean. If you've ever seen cattle with horns and what they do to each other, you'd take them off in a heartbeat too. I mean, they're, they're a weapon. Yeah, exactly. But people don't get that. And they think about their pets and their their cats and their dogs. And sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. I get all excited about it. They don't have the context is what I'm trying to say. No, you're no, you don't you're not cutting me off. I, I you have so much <laughs> I, I enjoy talking to you. You have so much uh valuable information. But yeah, no, we we don't People, when I say we, I don't mean me. I think society in general is like we've talked about already. We're so far removed from that that we just don't, that people just don't understand the, the small, you know, it's this. Yes, I, I will admit we don't, we don't dehorn much anymore. Most of all, because we have mostly pulled genetics. Um, mm-hmm. for anybody who not, who's listening, an animal's either pulled or horned based on their genetics. So we have mostly pulled cattle. But I remember as a kid, I was probably seven or eight years old and seeing that happen for the first time, uh, seeing a cow dehorn, it's a pretty traumatic experience because there's, you know, cows bawling, there's blood shooting everywhere. But if we really step back and, you know, put some context into what we are doing, it's it's for the safety of not only not only the people but the animals you know like you say it's uh you know it's it's it benefits everybody well it does and you know the same is true with with crops as well for anybody who's listening that's a a grain producer or works in anything in the soil um the same discussion can be had about chemicals because chemicals freak people out and mm-hmm. it's really interesting when you step back and you try to help everyone understand that they too are comprised of the same six basic chemicals that all life is but the the challenge is to help people understand the why behind what we do in farming and as i said it it is actually when you can explain that well to someone it's quite comforting the reality is, is where plants grow, bugs go. I mean, those bugs can be insects, they can be weeds, they can be moles, they can be whatever. And trying to open up that conversation and just say, yeah, we do use chemicals. And here's why. And here's how. And by the way, my family uh, runs through these fields. My family um, eats these products as well, if that's the case. So I guess the the point here is, is trying to have an open healthy discussion. It's not always what people want to hear. And I actually, in, when I wrote Food Bowling, one of the things, I couldn't figure out how to start the book. It was really irritating to me. And mm-hmm. I, it was one of the last things that I wrote. And I finally came out and said, you know what? If I was smart, I'd tell you the perfect food story. I'd give you a Charlotte's Web illustration you could grasp onto. But out of justice to the agriculture business, I can't do that. And out of fairness to you, I'm not going to sell you a story because I think you need to build your own story. And I mm-hmm. guess to bring it 
that full circle to the whole mental health aspect is I think we all have to be responsible for building our own story in agriculture, whether it's related to advocacy, whether it's related to food, or whether it's related to your own health and well-being. No, I, I I totally agree. We have to, it's like you said, we have to become self-aware and self-responsible for our, you know, for our own actions. And you you kind of led me into, I've been wanting, my wife, I promised my wife I would ask these two questions when I was telling you who I was speaking with today. And, and it's, it's, it's regard. <laughs> <laughs> yep, it's our anniversary today. So, I mean, I guess I'll do something for her. Um, <laughs> Oh, I'm kidding. I'm taking her on a week a weekend trip away. So oh, good. Yay. <laughs> so, and it's regarding GMOs. So yeah. the first question is why do people why is why do folks think GMOs are bad? Why is there this um I guess stigma is might be the best word to use here um around GMOs? Well, that's fairly simple, and I would point back to science. Um, one of the things that we talked about in food bullying is, is that you, um, when you're disconnected with some, from something, you don't trust it, and when you don't trust it, you fear it, and that's where the bullies leverage. Bullies operate from a point of fear. So with GMOs, the vast majority of our country thinks that food should be labeled if it has DNA in it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I would challenge anyone to explain GMOs to a society that doesn't understand their food has DNA in it. Um, and I'm being a little tongue in cheek. People fear GMOs because they don't understand that it's a precision technology. It's amazing mm-hmm. technology. And my hope is, is that when the BE or the bioengineer label, which is being required to be on food packages by 2020. Two, we'll do mm-hmm. away with the bullying label of the non-GMO, the butterfly. Love butterflies, mm-hmm. not that label. And so I think an answer to her question is people fear what they don't know. And if they don't know the science of food or basic fundamental building blocks of science, they're going to fear GMOs because we've all seen the pictures of the tomatoes with the syringe on it and the frog being crossed with the corn and, and all the crazy um, misinformation that's out there. Yeah. And it's, there's so much, there's so much misinformation. And I think it should be, I should be noted that the non-GMO project is, is not a, um, it's not a regulated issue. Is that, is that correct? That's not something that uh, somebody, a non, um, a nonpartisan not a uh, third party is coming in and regulating. There's a lot of, that's a lot. It's a, it's a big one-sided label. Is that, is that fair to say? It's a paid to play. I mean, when you look at the numbers that are behind it, it's um, a little sickening. However, the bioengineered label that is going to be required on food by 2022 um, is regulated. And I believe it's FDA. I have it in the book here. I'm looking up to see which uh, regulates it. And so I would encourage people to take a, a look at that. And the bioengineered really speaks more effectively um, to the precision of the engineering at a genetic level than what mm-hmm. GMO does. And, and I too use GMO because it's what everybody does, but it's an activist coin term. And it is mm-hmm. US that is going to be monitoring the bioengineered labels. So and if you're out there listening and you're frustrated about um, your 
lack of opportunity to use GMOs and you're frustrated about the misinformation out there, I absolutely agree, but you can't attack people because they don't understand it. You have to take them to a non-emotional level. And the ways that I usually lead the discussion about GMOs, I talk about diabetics and insulin and the fact that insulin is a GMO-derived product mm-hmm. or a product from GMO bacteria is the proper way to say it. Um, mm-hmm. Until I heard on our food bullying podcast a couple of weeks ago that moms actually bully each other about giving their diabetic children insulin that's GMO, which just makes me sick. Isn't that terrible? Yeah. yeah. You know, that without it, you know, there, and that kind of leads into my next question is, what would the world look like without GMOs? Well, I think that we could certainly survive. I mean, it's like any technology. Um, We don't have to have all of the GMO products, but where we've gone wrong is that we haven't helped consumers understand the advantages that there are in it for them. You know, the the brown apples would go a long way, or the non-browning apples, I guess I should say CRISPR apples, would go a long way to helping solve the 40% of food that's being thrown away in this country. Same with non-browning potatoes and the mushrooms that are coming out using CRISPR technology. Um, Mm -hmm. I think we probably talk all day, but we will spare your listeners about um, how GMOs could be used to solve blindness from malnutrition. Um, And yes, GMOs can be used for more efficient farming practices. And I have a lot of fun with talking about uh, corn that is naturally resistant to rootworm and watching people try to figure out what on earth I'm talking about before I get there, (laughs) non-ag people specifically. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that the world would really look that differently because we could talk all day long about being able to feed the world, but my research shows that 40% of people in this country don't care about feeding the world. And I know that's Hmm. not the case with many of your listeners, and it is certainly one of my ethical standards is that we have a responsibility to provide nourishment for every human being. However, I think we have to recognize that's not the driving force of many. But genetics, if you want to talk genetics and not just genetic modification, I mean, as a cattle breeder, you know the power of genetics. It, it's fascinating to see what we can do even in one generation over the, or over the co- course of several generations. You know, the ability to improve muscle mass, the ability to improve protein in cattle, the ability to have different types of soybean oils. Genetics and the food truth that I wrote about um and food truths from farm to table was that genes are the most amazing ingredient on your plate. And they are, Mm -hmm. but they Mm -hmm. terrify people. So there's a difference in my mind between genetics and genetic modification or bioengineering because hybridization clearly is not the same as bioengineering. And I think it's a mistake to refer to them as the same. Um, But the stories of genetic modification and genetic engineering um, that started way back with the sweet potato in Asia and it happening naturally through the soil. Those are the fascinating stories. But we haven't done a very good job about telling those stories. And quite frankly, it's such an emotional issue. It's really tough to talk about in a public setting. Yeah, it is. And, you know, we can, I mean, we could probably spend a 
three-day podcast talking about genetics and how they how they affect the agriculture industry. And um, it's it's a super interesting thing to get into. And I I encourage anyone who is listening to that maybe has no idea what we're talking about to go and just just research genetics and agriculture and how how much is being done, where we're heading in the future. It's just it's fascinating to me. It's really really a big part of the future of agriculture. Um, I do, I want to t- give you ample time to talk about what um, your your works that you've been been starting in mental health and, uh, you know, talk about your Facebook lives. And I know you do have a keynote uh, speech that you do give regarding mental health. Yeah, I do. So what I did was I, I developed a resiliency for agriculture program just to, to as a service to try to help um, colleagues in agriculture. And I've been doing a Facebook Live at the beginning of each uh, month, usually on the first Friday. Uh, the upcoming one is with Leslie Kelly, who's with the Dumore Agriculture Foundation and a canola grower up in Canada. But really what I've been trying to do is to bring hope and healing and some humor, frankly, um, to folks in agriculture. Having been through a number of life challenges myself, I get it. I I understand my family actually uh, lost our farm to bankruptcy when I was pretty young. Um, Mm -hmm. I've been through a a divorce. I've been through helping people with cancer. Um, And certainly there are far greater challenges out there. And believe it or not, it took uh, several of my professional speaking colleagues to talk me into doing this because I, like many people in agriculture, don't really want to have the conversation. Mm-hmm. But then when I look at the statistics of how many farmers are dying by suicide and the fact that it's twice the general U.S. population and that it's a global epidemic, I think that we have to talk about it. So really what my goal is, is to provide resources. And on my causematters.com page, I actually have a mental health resources page to try to help agriculture folks help themselves. Um, there's any number of phone numbers on there. There's links. If you have people in your life that you feel as though they need immediately help, immediate help, please go there. Um, and likewise, there's also resources and articles uh, from suicide loss survivors, from people who have um, behavioral health issues, from those that have been there, if you will. And all of the Facebook Lives that I've done are on that page as well, including one that I just did with a veteran um, and some of the similarities between mental health amongst the agriculture population, the rural population, and veterans. So my hope, as I said, is that that it will open up the conversation. I do strongly believe as a person who has been in agriculture entire life that we need to do a better job on this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, we really need to have the conversations. And if you see something, you have to say something. If you have right. a neighbor that has the dark windows that you never see come out anymore, uh, go have a conversation, please. Get people help in your life that you love. Um, I've had a friend who took her life by suicide um, very early in my career. Her picture remains in my office today as an inspiration because you never forget it. 
and if you're a person who you think is struggling, um, please go to the page. There's apps there, believe it or not, if you're a person who loves apps to um, try to have some meditations, there's different ways to take care of yourself. There's some really great tips. Um, I've just tried to compile everything. So if you happen to be a mental health professional listening to this, uh, please send me a contact form for additional information to add to that page, and I'd be glad to do so. It's a wonderful, comprehensive list. I was just looking at it this afternoon before we before we got on this call, and I was um, just I was so happy to see the the amount of of information you have there, and it's it's comforting to know that there is that there is that plethora of information out there because it's a daunting subject. And you mentioned Leslie Kelly. Um, I actually, she, I'm actually next week's show. I will be speaking to Leslie herself um, about her work with do more and um, all the, all the really, really fascinating and helpful stuff. She is doing up there in Canada and uh, I'm, I'm really excited for that. And, you know, I, I've been telling people that, you know, we're, we're, I feel like we're almost kind of behind the, behind on this as, as Americans. You know, I think the people in Canada are doing a better job. I think the UK is doing a better job. We need to step up and, and, and get out in front of this issue because it's something that, is I feel like is has kind of snuck up on us, and it's not like we haven't been through this before. You know, there was the '80s, and there were you know, there's been tough times before. But you know, um, we need to we need to be more preact proactive and less reactive. We need to get out in front. And what what another thing I've been talking to about people uh, about two people lately is is the fact that mental health does not necessarily equal mental illness. Um, you know, I think when you say the words mental health, they think of people who have a diagnosable disorder. But yeah. in reality, we all have mental, we all have mental health. It's a part of all of us. It's a part, you know, um, I have it, you have it, your neighbor down the road has it. Um, the doctor you ha- you go to see, he has it, you know, and just because, and a- another line I've kind of been repeating a lot is just because you're not diagnosed with anxiety or depression does not mean from time to time you're not anxious or depressed. You know, well, those things are, those things are on a spectrum. Yes. And I, I think it's important to like it to our, our land and our animals because just as soil needs tested every so often and our animals need treatment so every so often, we too have to take care of ourselves. And I'm just as guilty as anyone about taking the time. But as you said, mental health doesn't mean you have an issue. It just means that you have mental health, like you have physical mm-hmm. health and there's nothing to be ashamed of. And you know what? Yeah, we're under a lot of stress in agriculture, myself included. Mm-hmm. I get mm-hmm. it. And it's mm-hmm. it's time for people to put their money where their mouth is, so to speak, and let's do something about this. And I don't have all the answers, but I, I would agree with you that the States is a bit behind Canada and elsewhere in the world. I, I think that speaks to our independence, but it's it's frustrating to see. And, you know, every story that I hear come out about how how people are suffering on the farm um, when it comes down to their mental well-being, it, it saddens me. So I would just challenge all of your listeners to consider what you can do personally and how you can share resources with others. 
Yeah, no, I totally agree. It's 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 something that it's something that has to be started on a on a grassroots level. It's something that, you know, producers themselves have to start talking about because, you know, when you get a, a group of independent people together on an issue, amazing things can happen. You know, I mean, we've we've seen this before. You know, with not not with mental health, but with you know with trade issues, and um, you know, I, I can't think of anything specific right now. But when you get you know a group of independent people like farmers and ranchers together on something, it really moves the ball. It does. I also would challenge anybody who is in the the health business. Uh, we need more familiarity with mental health issues in rural America. Um, yes. We need a better network. We need more people providing support, more professionals be specific, because I've seen the numbers as far as um, rural mental health providers, and it's, it's terrifying. And I've had people message me and share with me that the wait lists are horrible. They have no one they can talk to in their area, and they don't know what to do. It so, is. It's t- Go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you no, off. I, I think we can do better. And I don't have the answers, but I would challenge people to consider what they can do about it. And I don't think there is a one concrete answer. I just think it, it's a it's a culmination of ideas that are going to come from this. And I, I read somewhere where um, the, the folks who are in involved in rural mental health, um, 95% or something feel like they don't have the adequate resources to address the the needs of their demographic. Yeah. And that is incredibly sad it is. Um, that, you know, we have people who are are the salt of the earth and you know they don't have the resources to take care of their own own well-being and um it's just really sad to me and hopefully we can start getting the conversation moving and getting getting folks talking about it and and hopefully doing something about it yes well my hope is is that your podcast will certainly um, help people do that. And for anyone who wants to learn more about the whole food bullying epidemic, you are welcome to listen in on my food bullying podcast or, or check it out. Um, but my hope is, is that maybe these types of conversations will help more people help each other. Yes. Well, Michelle, we are we are running a little short on time. So I do want to give you the opportunity. You have mentioned them in your in throughout the course of this conversation, but I would like for you to to give you a chance to tell everybody where they can find you. Um are you if you're on social media, your website, your podcast, all of those things. Sure. Uh, social media, you can find me with the at mpain speaker handle. That's M-P-A-Y-N-S-P-E-A-K-E-R. Um, my website is causematters.com where you can find all three of my books. Uh, food bullying is shipping right now already. So um, put in a plug for the author signed copies. And aside from that, I just appreciate you having me, Jason, and, and wish you the best with your new podcast here. Well, I appreciate that. And I appreciate you taking the time to, uh, you just looks like you came off a really cool trip based on all your uh, Instagram and Facebook posts. Were you in, were you in Washington? Is that where you were? I I was in Washington for a little getaway for mental health, honestly, to de-stress. And I'm getting ready to go out to the Food and Nutrition Expo in Philadelphia and then head to Idaho and then fly back home for the National FFA Convention. So it will be a road warrior week for sure. Are you going to be at National FFA? I am. I'm um, actually part of the breakfast celebrating women in agriculture. So are you going to be over there? 
I'm not, but my son is. So, oh, oh, um, yeah, he's a freshman and he, uh, he, you know, gathered, there were three freshmen that got to go from our chapter and he was one of the three that gathered enough points. He worked really hard at it. And, uh, I was, I'm really, really proud of him for getting the opportunity to go to that. Oh, he'll have a great time. It'll be such a motivation for them for sure. Yep. Yep. He's, uh, he told me the other day that he plays football, he plays baseball, he does all the all these things, you know. And he said, if if I had to give everything up and only keep one, I would keep FFA. So oh, well, that's that uh, you have to be proud. Kind of, yeah, it kind of made me uh, my chest puff out a little bit. So yeah, well, that's awesome. <laughs> so, yeah. So, well, Michelle, uh, I will I will let you go, and uh, I really again appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to uh, to chat with me today. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Ag State of Mind. We hope this episode has encouraged you. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Ag State of Mind. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify so you never miss an episode. See you next week.